Well, we are continuing our series in the book of Leviticus. Never thought I'd say those words. So if you're not there already, turn to Leviticus chapter 1. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Last week we laid some of the groundwork to try to understand Leviticus within the context of the first five books and ultimately the context of the entire Bible. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. This first chapter is on what is called the burnt offerings, or as you'll see in a minute, I'll call them the ascension offerings. It says, Then the Lord called to Moses, Leviticus 1.1, and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, that is Yahweh, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before Yahweh. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted to him, uh, for him to make atonement on his behalf. He shall slay the young bull before Yahweh, and Aaron's sons and the priests shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around on the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the suet, over the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. Its entrails, however, and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priests shall offer up in smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to Yahweh. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, these ancient words which seem strange to us are your words. Your words that you inspired through the pen of your servant Moses so many thousands of years ago. And yet, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the wonderful relevance of these ancient words, that these ancient words contain timeless truths, that while we may not be under this old covenant, nonetheless, this is profitable scriptures for us to glean, to understand more of who you are, to understand more of what you require to be able to enter into your presence. And so, Lord, teach us, instruct us in your holy word this morning. And I pray especially for anybody who has not yet trusted in that ultimate sacrifice of the Lord Christ. Might they go to him even this morning. And I pray for those who have, that we would cherish Christ that much more. In Jesus' name, amen. Every Friday afternoon for many years until the day of his death, a man would walk 
toward the beach in Florida and he would have with him a bucket of shrimp and he would feed these shrimp to the seagulls. This strange ritual of this man may not have much significance for us, but to be sure it had tremendous significance for this man named Eddie Rickenbacker. Because Eddie Rickenbacker was an Air Force pilot during World War II. And him and his crew of eight men were tasked to deliver a message to General MacArthur. And their plane got lost in the midst of the fog and ultimately crashed on the Pacific Ocean. And amazingly, each of these eight men survived the crash and they were on a life raft, a life-saving raft in the midst of the Pacific Ocean fighting off the beating sun rays and the sharks that surrounded them. They were starving to death. And one morning these men decided to pray to God for mercy. And as Eddie was dozing off, a seagull landed on his chest. And he grabbed that seagull, broke the neck of that seagull. Yes, I know, it's gross. And those men shared the meat of that seagull and they took the intestines of that seagull and used it as fish bait and were able to survive many days on that raft. And so every Friday for the rest of his life after the war had ended, Eddie Rickenbacker would go to the beach and give thanks to God and feed the seagulls. We often poo-poo ritual. We don't like ritual. In fact, sometimes you'll hear statements that float around evangelical Christianity. It's not about ritual, it's about a relationship. And there's a nugget of truth to that, obviously. But actually, the irony here is we find tremendous ritual in Leviticus in the context of relationship. In the context of a relationship of the God of Israel who entered into a covenant relationship. A relationship that's likened to marriage with His own people. And it's in the context of that relationship that He gives all this ritual laid out in Leviticus. And to be sure, it's, it's quite strange to our 21st century ears. It's very bloody and graphic. But I assure you that this ritual is pregnant with symbolism that I trust we can glean from this morning and learn from. But the book of Leviticus, as we mentioned last week, to frame it, within the context of those first five books of the Bible, which is really a seamless garment. It comes to us in five books, but really those first five books is one whole volume uh, that's called Torah to the Jews, the Pentateuch, to us Goyim Gentiles. And it's that book of Leviticus that is in the center of those first five books and really is the heart of those first five books. It's on the heels of the Exodus where God had delivered the Hebrews out of Egypt, entered into a covenant relationship, they built the tabernacle, and then sinned grievously against the Lord by worshiping a golden calf. You remember the story in Exodus chapter 32. 
And the end of Exodus ends with a kind of cliffhanger. Will Israel be able to approach holy God? Because at the end of Leviticus, even Moses isn't allowed into the tabernacle, the tent that symbolized God's presence. If you look at, if you flip just one page to the left, at the end of Exodus chapter 40, in verse 35, it says, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So even that man whom God spoke to face to face, he's an outsider. And it's not until Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 1 that God begins to then speak to Moses from the tabernacle. Moses is still outside the tabernacle. We see in verse 1 it says, Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying... And this begins the book of Leviticus. Now, just to give you kind of a map of the entire book of Leviticus. Leviticus is um, it's kind of like a cheeseburger, okay? Uh, the, the literary scholars call it a chiasm. Basically, there's kind of mirrors that work their way towards the middle of the cheeseburger. That's the most important part, is the center of the book of Leviticus. And so what you have in Leviticus chapters 1 through 7 is this, the ritual sacrifice that is laid out. And mirroring that towards the end of the book of Leviticus in chapters 23 through 25 is a ritual holiday. Lots of rules and rituals for holidays towards the end. Lots of rules and rituals we're going to see in the first seven chapters. And then there's a ne- the next section is on priesthood. We're going to see that in chapters 8 through 10. It's going to talk about the ordination of the priests and ultimately the sin of those first priests, Nadab and Abihu. And then there's a mirroring section, to, again, towards the end of Leviticus in the second half in Leviticus chapters 21 through 22. And then there's going to be a lengthy section on ritual purity covering chapters 11 through 15. Now we're going to call that the gross sections of the Bible. It's all about bodily fluids and unclean foods and all kinds of interesting stuff that we're going to try to understand the meaning of. And that's mirrored, again, in the second half with what we might call moral purity in chapters 17 through 20. And there in the heart of Leviticus, and this is where we're heading in this series, at the very center, the cheeseburger, the patty in the middle is the Day of Atonement. It is the very center of Leviticus, and I would argue it's the very center of Torah. It's the very center of those first five books, which is quite appropriate, and hopefully you'll be able to see the meaning of that as New Covenant Christians, because all of that is wonderfully fulfilled with Christ as our great High Priest. You just have to read the book of Hebrews, okay? And so that's kind of a lay of the land of the entire book of Hebrews, but now here as we get to this first chapter, what we're going to see in verses 1 through 9 is sacrifice. There's kind of um, de-escalating value of sacrifice, but each of these is describing what's called the burnt offering sacrifice. So the first nine verses is the ritual and the procedure related to sacrifice of the bull. Okay, And then verses 10 
through 13 is the sacrifice from the flock, the goat or the sheep. And then for, as we might call the po folk, those who couldn't afford the cattle, they couldn't afford the sheep or the goats, they could bring a chicken nugget. In verses 14 through 17, you have the offering of the turtle dove or the pigeon, which interestingly enough, if you remember the purification of Mary after the birth of Jesus, she brought they brought turtle doves, highlighting that Jesus was amongst the po folk. So let's start with the procedure of the sacrifice. Then we're going to go through the purpose and then we're going to look at the prophetic picture of the sacrifice. Okay. So first of all, the procedure. And the procedure is really repeated with each of the different animals. And, and sometimes it's not repeated and I think when it's not repeated, it's assumed. So first it would start out with the presentation. The presentation. In verse 3 it says, If the offering is of is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So a little bit of uh, a little bit of uh, interior design on the tabernacle. If we have that picture of the tabernacle, you could throw that up there. The tabernacle. It, 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 it was a giant tent. And as you would enter the tabernacle, there would be an altar there. This was the altar in which you would offer these burnt offerings, as they're called, at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And as you went further and deeper in to the tabernacle, to this ancient tent, there was graded degrees of holiness. Namely, the inter intersection, the Holy of Holies, the only place there... The only person who could go in that intersection was the high priest. We're going to look at that in chapter 16 of Leviticus. But this particular offering, you, you, you wouldn't go deep into the tabernacle. It was just right at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And there, you would bring the animal. You would bring, whether it was again from the cattle, a male steer or whether it was a lesser sacrifice from the sheep or the goats or whether you brought the bird, the pigeon or the turtle dove, you would present this to the priest. And no doubt it would have been inspected by the priest. It had to be a blameless sacrifice. It had to be an animal, you know, that wasn't like a three-legged sheep, you know, something that you didn't want, you know, that, you know, you... We have garage sales in northeastern Ohio here, you know, when you get all that junk from your house and you open up your garage and you, you have this wonderful idea that your, your neighbor might be willing to pay a couple dollars for your junk. And so you have this, this garage sale. Well, well, the sacrifices wasn't, they weren't supposed to be the stuff that you throw in the garage sale. The junk that you're trying to get rid of. It had to be blameless animals, whole animals, animals that were without defect. And they would have been presented before the priest. And then, in the first part of verse 4, there was this ritual of the laying on of the hands. It says, He shall lay His hand on the head of the burnt offering. Also, this phrase, burnt offering, and we're going to see this throughout this series. Burnt, 
lot of the, the, the most of the English translations translate this burnt offering, which is kind of more of a, distri- a, a description of the offering. It's burned. But the problem with burnt offering is, guess what? All the sacrifices were burned. So it's not very descriptive. And it's actually not a translation of the Hebrew word. It's kind of a description. Maybe some of the translations say whole burnt offering. That's a little bit better because one of the unique things about this burnt offering is that the entirety of the sacrifice was consumed in the fire. We're going to see other sacrifices. Some was given to the priest. Some, we're going to see later on, the peace offering. Some given to the priest. Some given to you. And you can invite family and friends to. It was like a little barbecue. But this sacrifice, all of it was consumed on the altar. But the, the phrase, the Hebrew word burnt offering, literally means ascension. Ascension offering. Uh, in fact, uh, no doubt you're familiar with the, the word holocaust. Holocaust, ola, is the Hebrew word that is translated here, burnt offering, which was the idea of the Jewish people were consumed in the fires of the German sacrifice. They were consumed on the altar as a burnt offering. It's an ascension offering, and this is significant. And one, uh, one significant passage on this is Judges chapter 13. Remember Manoah and his wife after they were visited by an angel of the Lord and they were told to offer a burnt offering sacrifice. Remember the angel of the Lord ascended up in the midst of the sacrifice. And so that's the idea of these ascension offerings. They They were converted into smoke and they ascended to Almighty God. All the animal was consumed on the altar. So we're in the midst of the procedure. So the animal's been presented... The the priest gives his approval and then a person lays his hand on the head of that animal. And we'll explain what the significance of that is in a minute. And then at that point in verse 5, it says that the animal was to be slaughtered. He, and this was the Israelite, he shall slay the young bull before the Lord. Verse 11. He shall slay it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord. Talking about the sacrifice from the herd or the flock. So at this point, probably with some kind of knife, after the laying on of hands, that animal is to have its throat slit. And that animal bleeds out on the altar. Now again, I, I get it. You know, we, we think meat comes from Giant Eagle, the grocery store, the butcher, you know. But there was a process that happened before. Some of you maybe have grown up on farms or you've seen that process before. I remember when I was in Cameroon, it was the first time I ever saw something like this where the neighbor, as we were visiting missionaries in Cameroon, the neighbor gifted us a goat. You know, and you're thinking, uh, I don't think they're going to allow that and carry on. Um, but what happened was basically one of the people from the village just came out and he slit the throat of this goat. And within 20 minutes, he started skinning that goat. And pretty soon, Fred was dead. And we ate Fred for dinner that evening. <laughs> well, this slaughtering 
of the animal was to take place as this ritual in ancient Israel. And then there was the manipulation of the blood. Now we're getting even more gross, you know? This animal that bleeds out on the altar. In verse 5, it says, Aaron and, and, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around on the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Same thing in verse 11. And Aaron and his sons shall sprinkle its blood around on the altar. And probably the idea is maybe more than sprinkling, they were splashing this, these puddles of blood on the side of the altar. Again, pretty gross, right? You don't even like blood in your steak, you know. You, they send it out to you a little too rare, you send it back. But this was a very bloody ceremony. Can you imagine the, the sights, the smells, the sounds of that animal as its life is being sucked out of it? I mean, this would be a very memorable experience. This wasn't a very seeker-sensitive worship service. You had to have a strong stomach. And then there was... Oh, and by the way, with the bird, uh, it, was, it was a little bit unique because uh, the, you know, the, the priest would wring the head off of the bird and there wouldn't have been that much blood. So in verse 15 it says, The priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and offer it up and smoke on the altar and the blood is to be drained out on the side of the altar. And then... After the killing of the animal, after this blood ceremony, which blood throughout Leviticus has a purifying effect. Then in verse 6, the worshiper, the Israelite, the layman, he shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. Verse 12, then he shall cut it into its pieces with its head and its suet. And we all know what the suet is, right? No, we don't know what the suet is. The suet is the kidneys and the hard fat of the animal. The point is, is that the entire animal is to be cut up. And as the worshiper is cutting up the animal, and the, the, the cutting up of the animal is to cut it into smaller pieces so that the entirety of the animal would be consumed in the fire... And as he's cutting up the animal, the text says in verse 7 through 9, the priests, they were to be arranging the wood. It says, The sons of Aaron and the priests shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests shall arrange the pieces, the head and the suet, over the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. And so the priests are arranging the fire, making sure the fire is stoked, which by the way, the fire was to never go out. It had to continue to consume the ashes of that offering. And again, this is because all had to be consumed on the altar with this burnt offering, this ascension offering. And also, there is a washing of the innards and the legs in verse 9 and 13. 
Its entrails, however, and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer up in smoke all of it. Again, notice the phrase all of it because this is a distinctive of this sacrifice. All of it on the altar for an ascension offering or a burnt offering. Same thing with the, from the flock. In verse 13, The entrails, however, and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it up in smoke on the altar. It is an ascension offering, an offering by fire, a soothing aroma to the Lord. And so here we have this washing of the entrails and the legs. And to state it plainly, this is probably so that there's no doo-doo in the sacrifice. Um, God didn't want any unclean doo-doo on the sacrifice, on the altar, so it had to be washed off before it was thrown into the fire. And then, to fill out the picture of what's going on in this procedure, there's instructions that are given to the priest. And what we're going to see with each of these different sacrifices, there's five of them, there's going to be a laying out of the procedure, but then when we get to chapter 6 and 7, which we won't cover in as much detail, the priests, it's instructions towards the priests and what they're supposed to be doing. In Leviticus chapter 6 and verses 8 through 13, I'll read it for you. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command Aaron and his son saying, This is the law for the ascension offering, the burnt offering. The ascension offering itself shall remain on the hearth on the altar all night until the morning. And the fire on the altar is to be kept burning on it. The priest is to put on his linen robe. He shall put on undergarments next to his flesh. He shall take up the ashes to which the fire reduces the burnt offering on the altar and place them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. Verse 12. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out, but the priest shall burn wood on it every morning. He shall lay out the burnt offering on it and offer it up in smoke the fat portions of the peace offerings on it. The fire shall be kept burning continually on the altar. It shall not go out. So notice the repeated phrase. It's the keep burning... It can't go out. Again, this is highlighting all of it is to be consumed. So that's the procedure. What about the purpose? What does all this symbolism mean? What is all this ritual about? Well, the basics of this ritual is this was how sinful creatures could meet with their holy God. This was how atonement was to be made. This was how sinners were able to be accepted before a holy God. And again, the biblical backdrop to this goes back to Genesis. Again, the beginning of this five-volume story that we call the Pentateuch. It starts in Genesis when God speaks to those forefathers in the garden. He says in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16, Then the Lord God said to the man, You can eat from any tree in the garden, but not from the midst of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely what? Die. Death was the consequence of sin. And if you kept reading the narrative into chapter 5 
you'll see in that table of nations, so-and-so begat so-and-so, and they lived so many years, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. Death entered the world through sin. And so if man was to be accepted before God, death was required. And so, shortly after, Adam and Eve rebelled in the Garden of Eden and they, they, they became self-conscious of their own nakedness before God, you remember what God did for them. He clothed them with animal skins. And the assumption there is that a sacrifice was made of an animal, the first death of an animal, so that the skins could be placed and cover Adam and Eve in the Garden Fast forward a couple chapters later, Cain and Abel. You remember, Abel gives that offering to the Lord and it's accepted before the Lord and it's from the animals, right? And you remember, Cain, he offers a sacrifice that's from the vegetables. And Cain's sacrifice is not accepted before God. And the assumption seems to be because... Death did not take place. There must have been some kind of instructions that death was required for sacrifice to be accepted before God. But you remember the story. Cain did bring a sacrifice then, but tragically the sacrifice was his own brother. He murdered him and butchered him. Fast forward to Genesis chapter 8. Now, Genesis chapter 8, this is the first time that ascension offerings or burnt offerings are mentioned in the Bible. And you remember the context of Genesis chapter 6 through 8. God was fed up with the wickedness of people and, and their rebellion against Him and the violence that was on the earth. And He was grieved that He had made the world. And so He decided that He was going to start anew. He was going to destroy all of humanity, save eight people. And so Noah and his three sons and their wives build that huge boat and God rescues them out of the flood waters and, and, and the hope would be that God's wrath was assuaged, that God's wrath was satisfied. But even as Adam and Eve, or not Adam and Eve, as Noah and his family got off of that boat, in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 19, it says, Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird and everything that moves on the earth went by went out by their families from the ark and Noah built an altar to the Lord to Yahweh and took every clean animal and every clean bird and offered there it is burnt offerings on the altar first time mentioned in the bible Yahweh the Lord smelled the soothing aroma and notice this, and Yahweh, the Lord, said to him, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing that I have, as I have done. What's fascinating here is 
despite this huge global flood of pouring out of God's wrath, it would appear that God's anger is still against humanity. And it's not until Noah offers this sacrifice, this burnt offering, that God then makes this promise, He's not going to do that again. And it's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And all this is signaling that this burnt offering, this ascension offering, is the means by which sinful man can be reconciled to holy and righteous God. And so fast forward through the Exodus, it's no wonder that these burnt offerings were part of the morning and evening offerings that were to be offered at the tabernacle, if you were to read that in Exodus chapter 29. And it's it's no accident that the very first offering... The primary purpose of that offering in the instructions given to it would be to make atonement so that man could meet with holy God. Back to to Leviticus chapter 1. The language here, the stated purpose of the burnt offering in verse 3. He explicitly states, If this offering is a burnt offering from the Lord, he shall offer it a male without defect, blameless. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he, that is the worshiper, that is the Israelite, that he may be accepted before the Lord. So again, this is ritual for the purpose of relationship. So that the Israelite, albeit a sinner, albeit a rebel, albeit not obeying God as he ought to, can be accepted before Almighty God and not incinerated by His holiness. Because the testimony of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is that God is a holy God. He is not a God to be trifled with. And His holiness is like the blazing sun. You can't get too close to it. Yes, it's good, just like the sun has benefits. But you can't get too close to it without being incinerated. So it is with the holy God. So the purpose of this is to be accepted before God. And then notice this purpose is hinted at with the symbolism of the hand. Notice verse 4. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. So you were to put your hand on the head of that burnt offering and then you were to slit the throat of that offering. Again, symbolizing death was necessary. But here, this this symbol of laying the hand on was a picture that this animal now represents me. This animal bears the guilt that I deserve. This animal is going to take the punishment that I deserve. This hand laying, it it happens a couple times in the book of Leviticus. One we mentioned last week in Leviticus chapter 24 verse 14. the, The man who blasphemes and curses the name of the Lord... It says in Leviticus 24, 14, bring, one, bring the one who is cursed outside the camp and let all who heard him, all who heard him curse Yahweh. They are the ones who are to lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him. Pretty serious stuff. 
So everybody who heard this man blaspheme was to come out and they were to lay their hands on his head, again, symbolizing he's the one who's going to bear the guilt for this crime. One more time in Leviticus chapter 16. Verse 21, Then Aaron shall lay his hand. So now this is the Day of Atonement. This is this great ritual where there's these casting of the lots over these two goats and one lands upon the one goat and the one goat is sent into the wilderness and the other goat is sacrificed before Yahweh. And then 1621 says, Then Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat And notice this, very important, and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins, and he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. And so you can see here, this ritual of the laying on of hands, I think it is quite clear it was a picture of that person's guilt transferred to that animal or in later chapter, that individual, that thing bearing the responsibility before that animal or even that person is put to death. And so again, all this is substitution. All this is, in the language of chapter 1, is atonement. It's atonement. It's how man deals with his guilt before a holy God. How man maintains a relationship with the covenant God of Israel. Well, you say, well, what's this have to do with us? Well, we too today, according to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As New Covenant Christians, we may not have to bring the goat or the pigeon or the bull, but we do still have to confess our sins and in a very real sense, press our hands into the head of the Lord Jesus and to plead His blood on our behalf as that which makes atonement for our sins. Friend, have you confessed your sin lately? Have you put your hands on the head of the Lord Jesus and says, Oh God, Forgive me for snapping at my spouse. Forgive me for snapping at my children. Forgive me for giving my coworker a dirty look. Forgive me for not loving you, the true and living God, as I ought to. Have you confessed your sin lately? We ought to keep short accounts with God. Every time God brings to our attention ways in which we have sinned against Him or rebelled against Him or failed Him, to confess our sin to Him. Friends, we live in a culture that desperately is trying to deal with guilt. Sometimes people try to deal with their guilt. Well, I'm just going to try to clean up my life and do more good. 
And they get on the treadmill of good works and try to work their way to God and hoping maybe God will accept me. But we see here, even from these earliest pages of Leviticus, the acceptance is on the basis of a sacrifice, not on the basis of human performance. Some people take to the bottle or take to the pills or take to sticking a needle in their arms to try to make their conscience numb and to deal with their guilt. But it never really does actually deal with guilt. I tell you today on the authority of God's Word, the way to deal with your guilt before God, of whom you are guilty before, is to go to the sacrifice of Christ. To lay your hands on His head. As Bernard of Clairvaux wrote, O sacred head, now wounded, with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded, with thorns thine only crown. What thou, my Lord, hast suffered was all for sinner's gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the sinner's pain, the, de- the deadly pain. Lo, here I fall, my Savior. Tis I deserve thy place. Look on me with favor and grant to me thy grace. Friend, place your hands upon the Savior. Him hanging there upon the cross, bearing your guilt and your sin. And you will be accepted before Him. It is a fascinating thing when you Look at the opening pages of Numbers because at the beginning of Leviticus, remember I said Moses wasn't allowed in the tent? But in Numbers chapter 1 and verse 1, it starts, Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. Notice the preposition, not from the tent, but in the tent of meeting. Moses is now in the house. If you want to be in the house... You've got to come through the sacrifice. If you want to be in the family, you've got to come through the sacrifice. Well, we've seen the procedure. Pretty bloody. Pretty gruesome. We've seen the purpose, namely to meet with God through blood sacrifice. And now let's ponder the prophetic picture of the sacrifice. The prophetic picture, you see, because the Bible is really one book. While there's 39 different books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, and multitude, some 40 plus human authors, there's really ultimately one author, namely God Himself. And in the Old Testament here, He communicates to these ancient Israelites through object lessons. In many ways, the way in which you might teach a young person through flannel graph or through flashcards or through object lessons. So God was teaching His people through object lessons that pointed to greater realities. It's not until we get to the end of the story that we see, ah, that's what this picture points to. And they are prophetic pictures. Listen to Tom Schreiner. Perhaps you've heard the word type. 
A type is something in the Old Testament that is a kind of prophecy, an event or a picture that points to Christ. He says this, the events, institutions, and persons in which there is a typological relationship are not merely accidents of history, nor are they simply employed by God as helpful illustrations. On the contrary, listen to this, the persons, like the priests, the events, the holy days, the institutions, the tabernacle, the temple, and the sacrifice, all that, were intended, this is very important, were intended from the beginning as anticipations of what was to come. So these sacrifices were pictures. Well, pictures of what? I'm glad you asked. First of all, remember the sacrifice that was brought had to be a sacrifice. Notice in verse 3, a male without defect. Or some of your translations say, may say a male that is blameless. And wouldn't you know when we turn to the pages of the New Testament, it's the Lord Jesus who says on one occasion, which of you accuses me of sin? I mean, would you dare to utter those words? Which one of you wants to point out my sin, you know? We say that, we duck. We know. Sometimes when I'm trying to help somebody understand their sin and they're not getting it, I'll say, well, what if I were to ask your spouse? What if I were to ask your brother or sister? But Christ, not Christ. Christ was the spotless one. He was the blameless one. He was the one who was without defect. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 13, it says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer and the sprinkling of those who had been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from Dead works to serve the living God. Or how about Peter's testimony in 1 Peter 1.18? Knowing that you were redeemed not with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Those ancient... Sheep, those ancient birds, those ancient cattle that had to come before the tent of meeting and be slaughtered, that had to be blameless, find their fulfillment in the spotless, precious blood of Christ. And this is again important because it had to be a guiltless sacrifice to bear our guilt, it had to be without blame. To bear our blame. But not only that, remember this whole burnt offering or ascension offering, all of it had to be sacrificed. All of it had to be consumed in the fire. And sure enough, when we turn to the pages of the New Testament, we see, as I just mentioned, 
how much more, in Hebrews 9.14, how much more will the blood of Christ, through the eternal Spirit, offered Himself without blemish to God. Jesus offered Himself, all of Himself to God. Not just part of Himself. He Himself climbed on the altar and was consumed in the fires of hell, bearing the full fury of the Father so that sinners could be accepted before Him. But yet there's more. Did you notice a repeated phrase throughout Leviticus chapter 1? At the end, when the the sacrifice is consumed on the altar, in verse 9, it says, It is a burnt offering, an offering by fire, a soothing aroma to the Lord. Verse 13, An offering by fire, a soothing aroma to the Lord to the Lord. Verse 17, a burnt offering, an offering by fire, a soothing aroma to the Lord. Should sound familiar. It's New Testament language. Remember Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave Himself for us. An offering and a sacrifice as a fragrant aroma to God. This is good news, friends. The pictures and the symbols of the sacrifice in the Old Testament were a sweet-smelling aroma to Almighty God. It was a kind of a barbecue. Ever been to a barbecue? Mmm, smells good. And each of those Israelites who brought that sacrifice, they knew they didn't smell good in and of themselves before God. They needed to smell good. I remember years ago when I was physical education in high school, you were graded on whether you brought clothes to gym class. If you didn't remember your gym clothes, you got an F for the day. And I was a little bit OCD about getting A's. And so I always made sure I had clothes in my locker room. Problem is, is that I often didn't take them home to get washed. And so as the semester would go on, the days I would sweat in those clothes and then I would take them off and put them back in the locker. Before long, an aroma began to come from that locker. And so I decided, well, let me just, you know, get some spray deodorant and spray those puppies down. It didn't really work. You see, friends, sometimes we realize that we don't smell very good before God. And we think, well, let me just squirt on a little bit of good works and maybe God will be tricked into thinking I smell good. But it just smells like B.O. mixed in with a little bit of flowers. (laughs) It still stinks. Oh, but my friends, Jesus as that perfect substitute. 
The One who lived the perfect life before Almighty God. Who weaved a perfect garment of righteousness only to give it away. Who laid Himself down on that cross as the beloved Son of the Father in perfect obedience to the Father. Oh, there's a sweet aroma before the Lord. And you can be accepted before God if you are connected to Him by faith. And so friend, if you're sitting here trying to be accepted before God by spraying on some deodorant of good works, you need a whole new wardrobe. You need the Lord Christ. And His sacrifice is pleasing. It's a beautiful, fragrant aroma before the Lord. And my friend, you may be here this morning as a believer with a wearied conscience before God. You may see the reality which you struggle and fail to live before God as I ought to. And I want to again say to you on the authority of God's Word, you smell good to God if you are in Christ. Your life, although in and of itself, is is faltering and stumbling and bumbling and not living as you ought to. But you've been washed clean because of Jesus. If you've trusted in Him, my friend. But friend, I also want to say, if you think you don't need a sacrifice, if you think you don't need a washing, then why did Jesus die? Why is He regarded as a sacrifice that is pleasing unto the Lord? If you can do it on your own and you don't need Him, then... Let me be quite frank with you. You are a proud, self-righteous punk. And you need to be brought low. You need to humble yourself before a holy God and confess yourself as a sinner who needs a substitute. And I have good news. There's a substitute in the Lord Jesus. I mentioned these ascension offering sacrifices. This isn't the first time they're mentioned. I mentioned the first time they occur is in Genesis chapter 8. But they do occur another time in the book of Genesis in a fascinating account. In Genesis chapter 22. Remember when God was testing Abraham? And in Genesis chapter 22, in verse 2, It says, He said, Now take your son, God speaking to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a, here it is, burnt offering, an olah, an ascension offering on one of the mountains which I will tell you. God told Abraham, to offer his son as a whole burnt offering, an ascension offering entirely consumed upon the altar. Imagine being in Abraham's sandals that day. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son and he took in his hand the fire and the knife and the two of them walked together. Can you imagine that walk? What's going through Abraham's mind as he's struggling in obedience to God the Almighty who's told him to sacrifice his own precious son, the son of the promise, the seed of Abraham, the descendant of Abraham who was to be the promised child through whom would come a nation? And Isaac begins to speak, verse 7. 
Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. He said, Here am I, son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Dad, okay, I see the fire. I see the wood, but there's no offering. Unbeknownst to him, he's the offering. Verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for Himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them walked together. And you remember, as Isaac is there on the altar, and as Abraham's hand is suspended between heaven and earth, and he's ready to plunge that knife into the sun, his beloved dear son whom he loves. And in verse 12 of Genesis 22, the Lord says, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. What we have here in Genesis 2 is a burnt offering prescribed. A burnt offering that was supposed to consume the seed of Abraham. But it would not be this seed of Abraham, Isaac, who was consumed on the altar it would be another seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 and verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? That seed of Abraham was consumed on the altar. He did pay the price. He was the ascension offering. And because of that, you can be accepted before Him. The great Anglican preacher of the 19th century, Charles Simeon, he was a young student at, I believe it was at Oxford, And he was told that all students had to participate in the communion. And Charles Simeon knew the devil was more fit to partake of communion than he was. And so he figured he better start studying up on communion, start reading his Bible. And, And in the midst of his studies and trying to understand Christianity, he read of these Old Testament sacrifices where the Israelites would lay their hand upon the animal and that animal was slaughtered. And he began to have beginning seeds of faith that were budding in his heart and the hope and the anticipation that maybe he too could have a substitute. He too could have a sacrifice. And it was Easter morning in 1779 that Charles Simeon partook of communion. 
But this time he did, as he says, laying his hand on the head of the Savior for the first time. Friend, have you laid your hand upon the Savior? Have you transferred your guilt to His? If you haven't, do it. Do it even this morning. Because we're going to partake of communion in a minute here. And this communion is a picture, again, it's another ritual. It's a ritual of what sacrifice has been fulfilled in Christ. This ritual doesn't point forward. This ritual points backwards. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank You for these rituals, these ancient rituals, that while we do not practice these rituals, we are on this side of the cross and practice another ritual, remembering the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus through the cup, through the bread, and the sacrifice that He made. And so, Lord, help us to remember this sacrifice, not only in word, but in ordinance. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we have the opportunity this morning to partake of the Lord's Supper. This is an ancient ritual that was instituted by...